are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Personal, textual, aerial. Amanda Ferry is a composer based in Ireland. She works with acoustic, electronic, and improvisatory forces, having written for chamber and vocal ensembles, theater, kinetic sculpture, and recording two album releases. Much of her inspiration comes from literature, folklore, visual art, and political immoralities. She is currently completing her doctorate at Princeton University. The first piece I really wanted to talk about was your piece called The Little Woman Wanted Noise with, uh, for guitar quartet. And I did, a, I did a little bit of research on this. The title comes from a children's book. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, it's, I didn't, I only read it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a really short story, but um, the gist of it is that a woman inherit she inherits uh land or she inherit she inherits money that she can kind of move out of the city and she she wants to move out of the city and but then she can't really sleep or do anything because of the the silence out there in the farm so she kind of collects all these noise making implements like animals and children. Um <laughs> and yeah, she adopts she adopts two boys because she thinks two young boys will just be super noisy. That's um, funny, a child is a noise making implement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Including like cars, machinery, animals, yeah, children, yeah. everything. And um and then there's a, just a quote in it that I loved. Oh, I can't remember the exact quote. It was um, basically now she's at peace. <laughs> um, now she can rest because she has all, all the sort of noise cancelling out any dead air silence. I just thought that was great. So did you, you did not read this as a child then? No, I only, um, maybe a few months before I actually wrote the uh, guitar quartet. I just came across it on one of those vintage book websites it was the artwork first that i came across um, oh, okay you know they they these great people that collect all these books and scan everything in so it was just the artwork that i came across and then it's like what is this story because it was the title as well i was like this is a great title um yeah it's a it's a wonderful title yeah and i think yeah. i mean you've given it you know further meaning as a composer mm. and the piece seems to the piece seems to follow the the kind of the narrative of the story based on you know I again I haven't read it so just based on what I've read about it, um, your piece follows that narrative it seems like and uh, I'd never heard of the book before but I immediately put it in my Amazon wish list because I have two daughters and I think it'd be awesome if I could you know read that to them. I think it's an amazing book for kids because, you know, you get to make all of the sounds of each of the, everything she collects and gets together. So it's a great noise-making book for sitting right. down with kids. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, in terms of working out the narrative of the story, it was more so, um, not really the not really the flow of the story, but... Um, just coming up with a couple of patterns 
um that I just sort of treated like elastic and that, that the whole idea was that there was going to be no no silence in the piece so there would just be these sort of motors just constantly running um mm-hmm. and that they were either in the foreground or the background or the middle ground and then something new might come in but that they were all always working away and it i thought it might not work for the electric guitar quartet because it's um it's not an easy quartet to write for because it can sound quite muddy if it's really low um but it's just the way i kind of worked out each of the instruments that I wanted things to be clear enough that you could hear something uh, peep through if it was in the middle ground or the background. Was this your first piece for guitar? I wrote an acoustic guitar quartet um, a long time ago now, maybe eight years ago. Um, Mm. And that was definitely more sort of metal-influenced kind of thing. Yeah? Um, Yeah, it was definitely more like shred chords than any kind of melodic patterns you know so yeah i don't even that's know interesting I... that you did that for acoustic guitar quartet i know opposed, i mean you finally have a you have the uh the tools in front of you with with you know, i know guitar. I, all i could have used all of the pedals all of the distortion but <laughs> i actually i did think about that and i was just like i don't want to do that right because that's i guess the route that I was thinking I didn't know Dither until we met at rehearsals and I was just thinking god do they expect everyone to just come along and give them a shred quartet you know so I just wanted to do something um something quite contrapuntal um yeah yeah and and I think it does that I mean I mean guitar guitar is just such a different animal I mean what what is uh what what was your first instrument or main instrument Oh yeah, my first instrument was piano, um, which initially I did. I wasn't really into lessons. Now I, I, I did practice, and I, I would have rather been somewhere else, kind of thing. Um, I think I wanted to do. Of course, sw- yeah. yeah, yeah. I wanted to do swimming or something instead. Uh, but later, I got really into it because I just kind of realized, well, I don't need the notation. I can pick up stuff by ear, uh, and play that way. Um, and then a few years later, I started the clarinet in a marching band. Um, so at that point, I was practicing all the time. Like it was, that was all I wanted where, to do. Where were you in the world when you were playing clarinet? Um, I was in Offaly in Ireland, which is in the Midlands. Uh, actually, I had an American friend who visited a few years ago and he said awfully it was like the Kansas of Ireland, if that gives you an idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just like yeah, I have a very clear land. picture of what that is. Yeah, flat land, flat accent, and not a lot going on. And actually... Uh, they, they have marching bands in Ireland? They had, it was like, so where I went to secondary school, it's like a small town, um, but they, they had a marching band which played, basically their only gig was the St. Patrick's Day Parade. <laughs> in the town ah okay that and, yeah. and then funerals that was literally it funerals and patrick's day parade oh, that's so, really heavy for a bunch of kids to be playing funerals oh yeah. my god and it was like 
But I weirdly liked the arrangements of all the funeral music. I thought they were beautiful. Um, and I didn't really like the marching stuff. Like we played like Washington Post and yeah, like really super high A clarinet, and it was um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely learned a lot. I mean, for playing in orchestras later, you know, and then marching so, at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, um, you don't play the guitar at all. No, I did for a while when I was about 10, when I was okay. like, you know, getting into Nirvana and everything. It's like, yeah, definitely. I think every kid's just like, yeah, I'm into all this now, so I want to be able to play. Um, so I did, I never got past kind of basic finger picking kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just like chords. Give me all the chords for Nirvana, please, and Pearl Jam, and then I'll be fine. I'll go off. <laughs> Uh, right and that was kind of that was kind of my experience too i mean you know i guitar was my first instrument it would it's what got me into music but i wrote i wrote a piece for electric guitar and marimba a couple years ago and i still feel like i don't know how to write for the instrument you know it's such a different a different thing whereas like you know when we're when you think about writing for a violin or a clarinet Mm -hmm. or you know even even the brass instruments you know like everything on that instrument is you know in the fingers whereas mm. guitar you know you're it, it's we it's it's something different about it that it just yeah. i don't know it doesn't doesn't feel like it's i know a, what a guitar can do even though i play it you yeah know? yeah i guess i was aware that there can be so many levels on the one instrument in terms of percussive rhythm melody and then I knew that there I guess I think some composers who don't play they come to the guitar feeling a bit daunted because I realized that there's so many options to play one note you know yeah and what if I write write down uh not a very easy combination of notes to to play um Mm -hmm. and then that just did I didn't make it easy for the guitarist but there was a, only a few things I had to iron out at rehearsal luckily I, I I kind of was in touch with a lot of guitarists you know that there's a few composers in Princeton that noodle around at the guitar so it was good to ask them a few questions but right, if I right. was to write another I think I'd be very daunted with a solo guitar piece right yeah because because of all those levels, I'd want to try all the things, but I just think I'd I'd need I'd need a good bit of time to do a solo guitar piece. But I'd love to write one someday. But um, a lot of prep involved, I think, or I would like to be able yeah. to prep this. Who is the guitar quartet that's uh, playing the recording? We're gonna hear. Um, it's Dither Guitar Quartet. So they're a New York-based quartet. Thank you. 
the guitar quartet was about noise and going, you know, kind of track tracking along to one of your other pieces, pushing air. I mean, this piece is all about noise. It seems like, which is, which is awesome. It's an orchestral piece. And typically I find when orchestral pieces use the amount of noise that you did, they are slow, ethereal, and beautiful, but not necessarily driving or rhythmic. Mm. And that's what I think your piece does very well. It, you know, it has a certain drive. It has a certain energy with these kind of noise, noisy elements, or maybe not necessarily noisy elements, but non-traditional elements, you know, mm. for an orchestra. Was there kind of an agenda you were, you were going after with this piece or, or were these maybe just the materials that, would satisfy your concept? I think I was definitely aware of a lot of colour-based orchestral works. And as you said, that were slowly morphing in time rather than having this right. kind of motoric setup from the get-go. Um, so I knew I wanted to use, go in that direction with the color-based idea and partly ethereal, but I wanted this driving rhythm from the beginning of the work that kind of didn't take over everything, but was just there the entire time. It was present mm -hmm. in different forms, the whole piece. I mean, it's just a six-minute work. It's not super long. But um, there, there are other factors as well, you know, one being I really initially hadn't a clue what I was going to do because this, this is my first piece for symphony orchestra right. um it was a really incredibly tight deadline it was three weeks so whoa okay yeah <laughs> oh my god didn't really eat didn't really sleep um it's kind of crazy um so but it was kind of cool because I had this basic idea and I just had to go with it I was like, there's no other time to kind of pick and yeah. choose between other maybe sketches I had. It's like, this is it. I'm going with this. And I have two weeks left. That You know, the countdown is on. Um, why, was, why was the deadline? I mean, why was the turnaround so quickly? It was part of a sort of um, kind of outreach education, sort of professional development program. Um, and we were working towards rehearsing for a workshop uh, and then the concert a month later so they didn't really factor in their writing time um, <laughs> so uh yeah that's we kind of had I mean we had four weeks but I didn't really I wrote it in three weeks because I was sort of I was like oh get the Samuel Adler book out you know like kind of <laughs> bone up on all my orchestration that I sort of haven't really looked at in so long, you know? Um, so I felt like I had to do a few days of that before I actually sat down and started the piece, which definitely helped. Like I needed to do that. Um, it stood to me, I think. Um, but back to the piece. Um, so, I mean, the, the concept, I did have a concept around it um, because I had just moved back to Ireland from New York um, and 
I had done a lot of field recording in New York because I was just walking around and um, I was just really fascinated how the bird life in New York sort of interacted with the noise. I, I found the noise really tough, even though the little woman wanted noise guitar quartet is about me not liking silence. I just was kind of very sensitive ears in New York and it was a bit overwhelmed with the noise. Um, yeah I mean when I when I moved here I mean I've always lived in fairly I mean decently sized cities in the states Um, the last city I lived in before I moved to China was Houston which is you know the fourth largest city maybe sometimes the third largest city but yeah the (laughs) the noise in in I guess a densely packed city is Um, is formidable yeah I just got really I don't know it made me really anxious um and also just kind of lack of sleep and stuff but um I guess that was coming from Princeton which I kind of lived out in the woods in Princeton (laughs) um Mm -hmm. and it was so frighteningly alive with bird life and other animal life you know but that didn't really bother me the I wasn't as sensitive to that noise as much as I was to urban noise so I was kind of interested in with the orchestra piece in combining all those urban patterns like a very urban environment with you know subway trains and just metal you know this yeah man-made cyclic uh elements yeah just machinery clanking away you know and then how just how the natural world kind of functions amongst all of that, how how their daily patterns kind of merge with just city life. Um, so pushing pushing air is, uh, I think I read it's it's like your phrase for how birds fly. Is that yeah, it? I made it up. Um, uh, there's like different stages of bird flight. Um, that so in the score, um, I just I named the different sections of the piece just abstract titles um, of the different stages of bird flight. Um, so there's drag where they just sort of try to take off the ground, and then there's a name where they're just not flying at all; they're just sort of floating on the air. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess orchestration wise I was kind of thinking of those different stages of bird flight um for each of the sections in the piece so there's like there's fairly abrupt changes in the orchestra piece where partly that's because of the deadline where it's like have to move on now um (laughs) right (laughs) yeah but it was also the kind of stages of bird flight as well within the urban kind of patterns that kind of are underneath and in in the strings and, and different parts in the orchestra piece.
This is actually the second orchestral piece that we featured on this podcast that uses birds. Oh, really? Um, the yeah, um, one of our um, one of our collective members, uh, John Sokol, he um, he has an orchestra piece called "What Trees May Speak," and he is actually an avid birder. Mm. You know, he's he. I think almost nearly every day Aww. he posts something on Facebook about here's today's bird thing or you know something like that. Oh wow! <laughs> Do I mean does you said when you were at Princeton you were kind of out you know not necessarily in the in a urban environment so do do does nature or do animals feature in your work often um they wouldn't have over the years but they're kind of starting to now more um or just patterns in the natural world kind of starting to influence me in pieces um i kind of i wouldn't be I wouldn't be an avid birder, but um, just <laughs> it, when... Yeah, it takes it takes a special, a certain type of person. Yeah, I mean, I would be when I'm at home, um, my parents' house, because we live out in the middle of nowhere, you know. Um, that's that's kind of the place where I, I'd sort of be more absorbed in it. When you're kind of living in Dublin, it's not really so close to you. You know, it's not really mm-hmm. so up in your ears so much. Um, so, but I... I just find it, it's bliss kind of when I am in that environment. So it it definitely has started to influence my music. And when I was in Princeton, there was just all these new bird calls that I wouldn't have heard in Ireland. So I did a lot of field recording there. It was so super, super clear um, because I was so in the middle of everything, you know. Yeah, and you're yeah. you're kind of sensitive to it. I had the exact same experience moving to China, where all of a sudden all these all these new patterns emerged, and and I ended up you know like you doing a lot of field recording and tried to you know integrate that into into um, the pieces I was working on, and hmm. so there's I something think, about yeah. I mean there's something about it that really connects with with a lot of different composers. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons is the majority of our time is spent either in front of a piano or in front of a computer screen or Mm -hmm. in front of the blank page and finally getting out and taking a walk is such such a uh you know maybe not a luxury but it's so different to our Mm. world i think um definitely over the years the connection with me is that i've just i've gone through a lot of change over the years i've moved around so much um and it is a way of writing it down or like including some kind of idea about it in pieces it's just a way of dealing with change it's just uh, it's a way of me dealing with changes in environment if i can kind of focus on it in a work mm. it makes me come to terms with things weirdly maybe a, a bit better than if i didn't it's almost therapeutic yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And that the orchestra piece kind of. I just I was kind of exhausted when I moved back here from New York. I sort of like I don't know how people do it. Um, the pa- the pace of life <laughs> there. I just. I'm kind. I'm kind of used to a slower pace, you know. And as you said, like composers are either at the piano, or they're at 
Sibelius or their computer or whatever. And there's this expectation in New York to just be out and about all the time and to to not miss any anything that's happening, you know? And that's where everything is happening. So, you know, exactly. it's so unrealistic. And then there's a guilt that sets in as well. If you, if you don't, if you miss certain things. And with me, if I'm working on music, I kind of just want to stay put and be the loner for a while. But it's hard, it's hard to be a loner or it's hard to be sort of hermiting in New York, I think. You get guilted mm. into things. Um so I, I didn't feel like I did a very good job being in New York, you know. Um, <laughs> but then I just kind of accepted, look, it's, it's not entirely for me. It's not for everyone. Right. You know? yeah. and if I was 21 when I moved there, I think things would have been a lot different. Um, but, you know, get, getting on now. So <laughs> 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 I just want things to be a little bit quieter, just a little bit. So I want to talk about Square Pushers because this was the piece that actually this this was the piece that made me want to contact you to to do this podcast. I had Kaylee Butcher and Liz Pierce from um from Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble on the podcast and um we talked about this piece that you had written for them. So how did you meet them? I met Amanda from Quince uh at the Bang & Can Summer Festival in 2010. Um, and I can't remember the year they set up Quince. It was maybe two years after. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was around... Oh, this is embarrassing maybe. because I... I mean, I just talked to him about it, but I guess that was a few weeks ago. But yeah, it was like uh, 2010, 2011, something like that. Yeah. Actually, I also... Again, at where were we? We were at a, a course in Italy as well, um, and that was two thousand eleven. And was that Soundscape? That's it. Sorry, the name completely escaped me. So Amanda was at Soundscape, and we did some fun vocal stuff there. Sort of like while I was there, I wrote stuff because I was writing for uh, the ensemble uh, before I got there, um, a chamber ensemble. So we did some fun vocal stuff at Soundscape. And I think I wrote Square Pushes in 2012. So that's when Quince approached me and um, mm. was that year. Um, so, yeah, just met met them through uh, just composition courses. Um, and then finally got to meet the entire group when they came to Princeton and performed Square Pushes. I think the first year I was there. so Or no, the second year, so 2013. So it's for it's for a female vocal quintet, and they kind of talked a little bit about the title, <laughs> which related to the I guess related to the process of composing the piece for you. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I hadn't written anything before Square Pushers, I was taking a little bit of a break. I hadn't written anything in a few months. And I was applying for grad schools and trying to trying to write those bloody personal statements and try to So <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, what and really like not thinking about why I write or what I do in, in a lot of detail. I was just, you know, 
working away the last few years and then those statements challenge you to just have a good think about where you're at so I had decided at that point I was like I'm sick of working in Sibelius I'm just sick of working with notated music I'm fed up and it's not it doesn't feel immediate enough to me and I I was having a lot more fun working with electronic stuff because it is more immediate so right. I was thinking of ways, how, how can I write a piece for the for Quince where I'm not just stuck at Sibelius for a few weeks or a few months. Um, so what I started, initially how Square Pusher started, I just started recording little phrases with the field recorder and writing them down on little, little slips of manuscript and just collecting a few phrases. And then, uh, I mean, the original score for Square Pushers is ridiculous looking. I can send it on. It's like a Fisher-Price score. It's just so bad. <laughs> um, I, I typeset it eventually, but no, the, the original is out there with colouring pencil and crayon and everything. It's it's so funny. But um, I just started gluing and, like, collecting the scraps of paper I had um, and had each each voice as sort of a track, the way you would work in uh, a sequencer, you know? Right, um, yeah. And I was sort of deciding on where phrases would lie uh, along just a timeline. So the score is just six minutes across um, and the material just moves across. Um, and then I was thinking of the text. So the text is just one line, which is uh, realign the time. And right, where does that come from? I just made it up. Um, and you have a way with words. <laughs> <laughs> but then I can't really explain. I'm saying I just made it up. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> That's good I, enough, right? <laughs> and then I guess... I guess I was thinking of realignment in, in terms of the squares. You know, when you work in a sequencer, it's the same thing. Um, like a moment in time might just not work so well and that you have the power to just shove it over a little bit, you know, um, and sort of mould it that way. It, it, it's so quick and it's so immediate. So I was thinking with the little scraps of paper that I had, I had the power to do that. And also I was very open to the kind of semi-improvisatory side of things in the piece as well. Mm -hmm. I was kind of interested what the result would be there as well. Um, so I'd say four minutes of the piece was set up that way. And then the last two minutes of the piece, um, I wanted a very chordal... Um, at, at that point of the four minutes, they're very much in time. So mm -hmm. yeah. all of the phrases that have been floating in and out and, and popping through the texture, um, kind of the melodic aspects, that just is chordal by the four minutes and they uh, just repeat the phrase, realign the time um, up until the, the end of the piece. Um, so yeah, I had, I had, it was like one of the only pieces where I had so much fun working on because I wasn't near the computer once and I just had these little fortune cookie sort size like slips of paper just working um, on I had graph paper and everything so it was like really 
like arts and crafts, you know, um, and I was just gluing little parts together um, and then just sent it off to Quince and they performed it and they, the recording they sent back, I was so happy with it.
Yeah, they're pretty they're pretty amazing, right? Yeah, they're incredible singers. Um and they just got the idea of the piece as well. Um so so brilliantly. Um and I mean, usually I I'm never really happy with you know, I I don't like being at concerts when I have a piece on them. I just I'm so uncomfortable the entire time. Um mm-hmm. and then I wait for recordings to come back and I'm 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 very bad at nitpicking and sort of obsessing over parts not that the performers didn't play well it's that I, you know saying to myself oh I shouldn't have wrote that part or I should have kept that longer right. you know just sort of doing mass post-mortem on the whole thing um but I, I think, think that's that's why electronic music is so seducing yeah exactly because because you have complete control and you have that immediate that like you say the immediacy of getting it exactly right yeah and you know when you were describing how you were working on this i like that's a great idea i might steal that from you yeah it was (laughs) like that method of working because like you say if you even if you you know if you're working in sibelius and you want to put this rhythm a 16th note sooner oh my god you know that's that's like 10 10 minutes of work Mm -hmm. to just try something you know that's it whereas in like where whereas when you're in logic or or in you know any 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 situation where you're working with electronic music it's like that that immediacy is so crucial mm-hmm. and yeah so steal away really love, yeah yeah i love that idea so. <laughs> go have fun with it i'd love to try it again i i mean don't know how it work for like a a larger ensemble um but i'm i'm still constantly thinking of ways you know, I've started to do a lot of stuff with electronics now where for a few years I stopped doing that because I felt like, I don't know, when I was in the last few years in Princeton, I felt like I had to try my hand at, at sort of 
oh, I have to put together a, a string quartet I'm proud of and I have to put together a piano trio I'm proud of. You know, the the sort of those heavy kind of right. genres of the classical world. The when ones that have history. The the massive history behind them with yeah. the, the weight of it all on your shoulders. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm glad I did all of that. But now I'm kind of like, no, I don't care anymore. I want to get back to what makes me happy when I'm, what makes me super happy when I'm, I'm working away. And that usually involves electronics. Um, mm. It usually involves, it usually involves an element that's more immediate than me trying to figure out how it would sound like from Sibelius. Right. Yeah. I've tried to kind of pin down why I like this piece so much, Square Pushers. And I think, it's the simplicity of the materials with just the right amount of like manipulation and variation. And it has this really smooth and effortless sound to it. It's not too short. It's not too long. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't try to do too much. You know, it just, it, it's like the perfect definition for me of a piece just being, you know? Yeah. I think, um, in terms of how the material how it moves through time I was just thinking of very basic very basic electronic effects that you would mm. that you would process a recording maybe uh, yeah the way I was just recording vocal samples into my field recorder how how can I manip like very simply manipulate this and I was thinking of like panning and um and there there are elements that can very much be mapped acoustically in terms of dovetailing stuff and you know mm -hmm. right so i was just thinking of um the, it's the, i think the mapping is is part of the composition or is part of the piece as well and that's yeah sure where i had the most fun um, <laughs> and then obviously the the organization of material that was also that was um, interesting to try it as well. I haven't tried anything like that with a piece since. Um, and I've I've gone through times of like really, really strong frustration because I'm back working in Sibelius. Um, and I suppose there's no point complaining about it to anybody, you know, people like teachers, because they're just going to turn around and go, well, why are you still working in Sibelius then? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but I guess things, you know, time flies and it. we don't get a lot of time anymore to just sort of sit down and think about our practice because I don't at all. So I'm trying to finish other things, you know, like teaching work, you, you know, life gets in the way. Um, but I think I, I'm, due, I'm due a week or two now to just sit down and maybe do a bit of journaling or something just mm -hmm. to you know because I'm coming towards the end of my PhD so I'm sort of I'm free <laughs> I'm free in, <laughs> in a little while and it's if I, I if I want to continue working I don't want to feel like I'm under pressure to stay in one medium of working you know um, right and for me getting uh getting out of the doctorate was I mean it was it was a huge change. And I, I've yeah. talked about this on, on other episodes, but um, it was the type of thing where once I was done, 
I knew for myself that I had to change everything. Yeah. And um, kind of like you say, like, you know, there things had to get done. There were deadlines. You know, you just had to you just had to push push through yeah. and use all the tricks that you had until you got that sense of freedom. And then when you get that, then you can reinvent, which is liberating and also terrifying at the same time. Because all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you don't know what you're doing anymore. But I feel like I, when you said reinvention and, and, and change, I know so many students who, uh, not that they've had like a revelation in their PhD, but there's been a massive sea change. A lot of people I know where they're like, screw this, I'm not working this way anymore. And yeah. I think that's brilliant. And I'm, I'm always interested you know, in the, the other years that have come into Princeton since my first year, some of them come in with a very confident style, like completely established, like this is it, this is my voice, this is what I'm doing. And I'm always really excited when those students completely change and they just start, yeah. you know, I'm going to make dubstep now. I love that. I, lo- <laughs> I love when that happens. Um, uh and I feel like, you know, the four or five years, however long you're in your program, um, it's like, students will approach it differently, but it's not, it's not always about being careerist, you know? We have that time, right. we have that time and the, the funding, which is incredible, to kind of walk around and bump into walls for a while and be like, oh, you know, I don't really know what I'm at. Um and we're given that you know we've to do our workload or whatever as well but it's it's amazing that that can happen as well but there's the potential there for just such a huge sea change it's kind of an exciting it's one of the most exciting elements of doing your doctorate that you just that that time and space is there to do that the uh, the last piece we're going to talk about um, Nocturne for the Old Raver, this and Square Pushers kind of, it seems like they share a like common ground in terms of your process of writing them. So you've, you've described compositions like that, like, like this that you've done as compositions on the fly. So mm. can you describe what you mean by that? So that the piece I sent you, there's two versions of this. Nocturne for the Old Raver, and the version I sent you is the um, is the fledgling version. It's the first version. Uh, so I have I have an album that I made that was never ever intended to be an album, but now it's out there on tape. Um, and so over the years when I've been in Princeton, um, I was uh, going back to Ireland in the summertime. And I was home in my parents' house a lot. And I was, um, as I was saying earlier, there's not much to do where my parents live. Uh, so I was just kind of working on composing. But I was also doing a lot of improvising at the piano. Um, so I had this idea to uh, switch the field recorder on and just see what happens and don't mm-hmm. pause. Um, so that's that's what I mean by compositions on the fly. I started to just see it, it usually kind of average 
ended up at about 15 minutes where I sort of was um, feeling drained after playing for that long. Um, and I think how many pieces are on the album? Maybe five or six pieces, but Nocturne for the Old Raver was recorded on my home piano, which is, it's not played anymore at all. So it's in bad shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the only idea for the pieces on the tape, I had no musical material going into it, going into the improvisation. So there's a lot of silence. <laughs> there's a lot of silence in the pieces where I'm just like panicking about where to move to next. Um, and there's a lot of space in the recordings. So the only idea I had going into Nocturne for the Old Raver was um, just a very basic rhythmic chord idea of, do you know the kind of kind of 90s techno where they would have these like sort of... Yeah, yeah, you, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Do you know like kind of the Detroit techno that had these like dun 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 these kind of chords um mm-hmm. and they were like these triadic kind of jumping around the keyboard to major minor and i i was writing a piano piece that summer for lisa moore anyway i was like i really wanted to do a piano piece about these rave chords um and so that was the only the improvisation when i sat down to play Nocturne for the Old Raver. That was the only idea I had, was those chords. And then it turned into sort of a weird Nocturne, but, you know, in terms of the chords that I kind of added halfway through the piece. Um, And then at the end of the improvisation, I I had the idea for the piece for Lisa Moore. I was like, okay, I'm going to call it Nocturne for the Old Raver, and it's going to be about an old raver that's in his 40s now and that he used to go to all these raves when he was younger and now he's sort of feeling a bit tired and a bit nostalgic and he's he has a mortgage now and he has kids and he's feeling a bit shit <laughs> so <laughs> that was the whole idea of the piece um so that it was half half these sort of rave chords material and then half kind of chopin chords sort of creeping into the piece.
so these pieces they're not they're not meant for live performance right no i wouldn't be able to recreate them at all and right. it was actually i notated the piece for lisa moore it was is a transcription of the recording i sent you so it's quite different and i sort of expanded on material from the improvisation but it's it just feels more rigid to me right Do you know the one thing i mean the thing that i really really loved about the recording is actually feeling like i'm inside the piano you know hearing hearing how how your piano had these ticks and you know mm. some strings that sounded kind of out of place and you know yeah. and that was that was an incredible part of the piece because it gave it this intimacy yeah i think it gave it this kind of like well i'll just ask like do you remember when you did this improvisation like what time of day it was it was in the afternoon and i had i did a few improvisations that day but it was in the afternoon and i could hear it just doesn't come up in the recording but you can hear my mum shout shouting at me or she was shouting at oh, me really yeah she's like come do something for me i don't know what she wanted but <laughs> um and then where the road where our house is there's just like a lot of tractors because it's like it's like a farming kind of area mm -hmm. um so i had the window open so so on some of the later recordings i did that day you can hear the birds and the tractors and things in the background but it was like a really sunny day and I remember finding the bum notes that you can hear in the recording uh -huh. thinking, wow, this, this piano is just, <laughs> needs some it, help. It needs a lot of help. It's like, I didn't realize it was this bad <laughs> since I've been home last. Um, and then I just decided, well, here, they sound kind of cool. These kind of, this, some of them sound like bell. They're, they just really weren't working. So I just yeah, but that's I, I think that's that's one of the elements that gives the piece that really unique quality about it. How it doesn't work in I mean how how you can't translate that into live performance. How this is no. a very specific moment in time, you know, where it and it's it's fleeting, and the the piano will never be the same. You'll never have yeah. another. You know that's that's what's so great about about this. Yeah. And that, um, that's what I really connected to. I think it's like the whole album, when I put all the pieces together, part of it was me missing playing the piano, like, because I've got, you know, when you don't practice an instrument, you just get very, technique-wise, you get very, it becomes very poor, and, you know, there's material I just can't play anymore. That I think there's, that's kind of sad element. Um, mm -hmm. But also that I, I'm not home with my, parents a lot anymore and I'm not home at the piano and you know my mum would always say oh I remember when you'd play for hours I think she misses that too so there's like a ton of memory and sadness and nostalgia there so it's kind of like reconnecting with my home piano as well and the fact that that piece in particular is emphasizing all these that's kind of neglect kind of emphasizes the neglect of it and how it's a bit rusty and it's not played anymore and i think that piece on the album the most kind of reflects that i think mm -hmm. 
Thanks for listening. Usually the last question of the show is about how the guests got into music. But that question prompted an awesome conversation with Amanda about composers that are women, gender, and equality that we're going to share completely as the dangling modifier to this episode. If you want to hear more from Amanda Fury, please go to her website, amandafury.com. And as always, check out more podcasts and music from Adjective New Music at our website, adjectivenewmusic.com.